The bird that attacked Laura Palmer is a client of this office. Hello and welcome to episode three of The Lodgers. This is the Twin Peaks podcast over at Sorted Cinema, hosted by myself. My name is Simon Howell, and I will always be joined by Kate Rennebaum. Hello. And this week, our guest is Mr. Matt Crooms. Hey, happy to be here. Huzzah! So this week, we are going to be talking about the uh, the fourth and fifth episodes to air. That would be uh, Rest in Pain and The One-Armed Man. Before we get into this discussion, I want to just briefly mention, over the last week, we've had some interactions with the wider Twin Peaks podcast verse, which I had yes. no, I knew it was vast, but I didn't know how vast. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are a lot of Twin Peaks podcasters out there, and they are all very lovely and welcoming and friendly, which is a nice, uh, nice turn of events, for sure. Yeah, actually, being sort of introduced to the wider Twin Peaks verse of podcasters, it kind of feels like entering Twin Peaks. Like, I'm, I'm waiting to find out who the sinister ones are. <laughs> yeah, there will be a dark underbelly to the uh, Twin Peaks podcast. What if it's land. us? <laughs> Ooh, I kind of like that. Let's, let's hope it's us. Let's make that happen. Oh, man. Anyway, everyone's been very nice, so thank you. We also got a very nice review from someone named RP40 on the iTunes feed this week, and then the review disappeared, which is just oh, sort of a thing that happens on iTunes, but it also feels appropriate. Oh, it was very nice, so thank you to whoever wrote that anyway. I was sure it was one of your friends, because I don't have any. <laughs> Let's just assume it was the kindness of strangers. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so thank you to whoever that was, and thanks to everyone who's been in touch over Twitter, and I'm sure we'll, we'll be continuing the discussion as, uh, as we inch closer to, I mean, for us, inch closer to the end of these episodes and then to the new episodes. And I guess for everyone else, the people who've been at it for a long time have really been waiting for these new episodes for a long yeah. time. So props to them. We didn't have that kind of patience, which is why we waited until we knew that we would just be timing it for when it started. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so yes, these episodes, I wanted to sort of, briefly mention the credits for these and sort of uh, introduce what's what's going on in each one so uh the first episode is rest in pain we should also just quickly mention this is the first week we have no frost or lynch credits rest in pain is directed by tina rathborn and written by harley payton and uh, the one our man is directed by tim hunter written by robert engels uh rest in pain introduces the concept of the bookhouse boys a little bit more backstory in terms of their knowledge of sinister goings-on in Twin Peaks that go perhaps beyond the natural, as well as the funeral of Laura Palmer, and uh, quite a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on in that episode, and uh, of course the One-Armed Man introduces us to the actual One-Armed Man, as well as some more goings-on with the sawmill and sort of forging new connections between characters, uh, such as uh, Leo and Ben Horn, as well as Josie and Hank Jennings, but we'll get there when we get there. So, um, Matt, may, I don't know if you'll agree with me on this. I know that last week we we sort of there was a, a sort of a quick consensus that the second of the the two episodes was perhaps the more interesting. Personally, I this week inclined to the first of these episodes being a, a little bit having a little bit more going on. But do you have a preference between them? Definitely episode four. I mean, I have a ton of notes about episode four, and it got me thinking about Lynch and all sorts of questions. Five, sort of like. I have a handful of notes, so I guess yeah. just based on, you know, the way my hand was hitting the paper, four is much more interesting for all kinds of reasons I'm sure we'll get into. 
Well, uh, do we want to take a second too and just uh, maybe ask Matt uh, just to give some intro to himself about what his relationship is to Twin Peaks and like how, you know, why we've asked him to come on the podcast. Yeah, that's a minor detail. <laughs> I mean, Lynch and Twin Peaks were so sort of formative for me, you know, in my teenage years. You know, I think he's partly to blame for why I made the irrational decision to go into film studies. And that interest pretty much continued from, you know, my time I was about 14 into my, you know, MA thesis, which I wrote about Lynch. And, you know, so now it's been really fascinating to review Lynch and to review the show in the context of how my obsessions, my commitments have totally changed and become much more political, uh, much more Marxist. So it's interesting to go back and watch Twin Peaks and watch interviews with Lynch with those kinds of frameworks in mind. And it's also sort of fascinating to watch the show now in the context of the rightly or wrongly named golden age of television. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, I've really been thinking about how does Twin Peaks stand up to more socially oriented TV like Mad Men, like The Wire? You know, was it going to seem kind of juvenile now? Uh, and I guess the short answer, and we'll get more into this, is sort of yes and no, I think. That's a good way to start us off. That's a good, uh, good intro. I feel like yes and yeah. no is always our answer to all questions on this podcast. Qualified yes. So, uh, Kate, how about you? Uh, episode four versus five, real quick. Did you have kind of the same sense of there being a little bit more going on in uh, in this first episode? It's interesting. I have a split answer. I think, um, of course, plot wise, and so, yeah, of course they do. Uh, plot wise, and in terms of like developing the thematics of Twin Peaks as a show, I definitely think episode four is the stronger. I would say stylistically, though, I think Tim Hunter has a stronger handle on working in the vein of Twin Peaks, just a little bit stronger than Tina Rathborn's. And I don't think Tina Rathborn's episode is bad, but I, I will say there are, I found it a little more noticeable moving from the previous week's episode, which was uh, Lynch directs, right? Episode three, which ends with the Red Room sequence, into Rest in Pain. There's just some slight things that I think are a bit of an issue in terms of the style qualities in episode four, including... Stuff like Tina Rathborn uses moving camera in a way that other people haven't. There's a couple of handheld camera shots, which reviewing the show with a bit more of an analytical approach now really stand out because they are really not used very often in the show and they end up reading a little cheap or something. Um, I'm thinking of the sequence where Coop and the sheriff go to visit Leo Johnson and you get an awkward handheld shot as they walk down a hill. Mm -hmm. uh, you also get an awkward handheld shot in the sequence where the bookhouse boys are introduced and you're in the quote bookhouse. Uh, and also there's just some stuff going on with the editing. Some of the scenes feel a little more clipped. You just want there to be an, an extra second of breathing room after dialogue at the end of some of these scenes, which I think Lynch is more comfortable allowing. There's a bit more of a rhythm. Uh, in these ones, it sometimes feels like they're they're just jumping from scene to scene because the editing doesn't I don't know create the rhythm in the right way exactly and th and that's there in the Tim Hunter episode too but I noticed it more in the Tina Rothburn mm -hmm. episode there's a kind of an aesthetic shift to the moment you get to four where the show looks much more sort of bright and glossy mm -hmm. and all of the characters look much more manicured than they did in the previous episodes so mm -hmm. when you lose Lynch's little stylistic details I think on a previous podcast you know you talked about lighting and how certain characters take on a kind of menacing tone, whereas these episodes look much more glossy to me. Yeah. And you, these are the little kind of stylistic touches I think you lose when you don't have Lynch at the helm. Tim Hunter has a handle on on how to work in oddities in a way that I think is on par with what Lynch is doing. And there were two moments in the in that second episode I just wanted to mention because I thought they did a good job of this, was um, early on you get a sequence with Coop interviewing Dr. Jacoby in 
the uh, sheriff's office and it's a sort of a shot with them both at the end of long tables, a long table. And Jacoby is like popping ping pong balls in and out of his mouth and his ears. And, you know, it could just read as a joke, but then it, it, it does a good job of sort of then you have a move into a much darker set of subject matter when it's Jacoby talking about his relationship with Laura. And, and it, I, I thought that worked really well. And you get a similar thing later in the episode where, uh, Coop and the sheriff are, it, well, you don't realize this when the scene opens. When the scene opens, it's sort of a long, uh, long shot of people playing tennis at night in like odd outfits outside. And then all of a sudden it, the camera racks to Sheriff, uh, Sheriff uh, Truman and all of a sudden you're like on a stakeout and they're about to go into Leo Johnson's house. But like that kind of stuff, I, I think Tim Hunter has a good handle on that. But I do agree with Matt. I think on the whole, they are a little lighter, a little glossier, which is a bit of a different vibe. I find it fascinating that you picked up on sort of flow in these two episodes, one versus the other, because I don't know if either of you have ever read any of Tim Hunter's film criticism. Oh, no. Uh, it was one of the first things that came up when I, w- I was looking for interviews with Tim Hunter. I didn't really find any that were relevant that I could read. But he specifically writes about, uh, I mean, he writes about a lot of things. But one of the things he wrote was about Mike Nichols and The Graduate and how he didn't like uh, Mike Nichols' style. Specifically, he criticized Nichols for uh, really only ever thinking of uh, one shot at a time. Like yeah. he, how he sort of focuses on whatever is going on in the shot. Like if, if someone jumps in a pool, then the camera jumps in the pool with them. And, you know, he or he focuses on the, the headlights on a, on a car and he's not thinking about the transition from shot to shot or from scene to scene in a way that is that he found meaningful. Whether or not we, we find that accurate is, is neither here nor there. The fact that you sort of found more aesthetic cohesion or perhaps more, more uh, better editing rhythms in his episode is, is interesting. The other thing I wanted to ask was, has anyone seen Zelly and me? I'm going to be missing our little meetings. Me too. For me to be able to sit and talk to somebody like you, it's sweat. You've got some chocolate here. No. Oh, that's the Tina Rathburn film, right? Yeah, it's the reason that she directed this episode is because she directed Lynch in his first acting role, really, and uh, Isabella Rossellini in that film. And um, I gather that's how she got roped. It's a very tight-knit family. Generally speaking, it's pretty easy to figure out how everyone got involved. Uh, anyway, I was just curious to see if, if, if anyone had seen it, because it sounds like a really strange film. And she doesn't really have any credits outside of directing that and, uh, and directing two episodes of Twin Peaks. Oh, I didn't look. She doesn't have credits following that. She didn't continue in directing. Hunter has kind of an impressive resume, right? Huge he's directed resume. Of, yeah. of Mad Men, and he directed the film The River's Edge. And, you know, from what I understand, he, you know, is indebted to film noir and shoots the episode in closed spaces, depth of field, and has a more dialed back sort of style so that little bizarre eccentricities can sort of emerge like yeah. Hank's uh, domino and things like uh, that. I, I would add to just for our audience, uh, if anyone hasn't seen River's Edge, I highly recommend it. it it's actually like, it's a film that I, I really, really like. It's um, one of those go-to films for defending the amazingness that is Keanu Reeves. And if you don't believe me, you have to go watch River's Edge before you can get into an argument about it with me. So go watch River's Edge. Tim Hunter is, he's a really strong director. And that was like one of his first films. And I mean, he clearly has talent. He's clearly a strong director. And yeah, he's he's definitely parlayed it into an extensive career as a television director. So Yeah, if anyone doesn't know, Kate is a huge Keanu Reeves aficionado. And if you don't believe me, you can go listen to either of the uh, John Wick podcasts that we did over at Sorted Cinema. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say about that. I just love that you that we found a way to 
squeezing Keanu right. once again. Just wor- Wait, because let's just put this on the record right now. The universe is still waiting for what it deserves, which is a collaboration between David Lynch and Keanu Reeves. I mean, come on, universe. Like, this has to happen soon. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was very sad that of the 350 people attached to the new Twin Peaks, Keanu Reeves didn't get it at all. Because they know each other. I mean, uh, Keanu interviewed him for his documentary on uh, digital, like the switch to digital filmmaking. So I'm like, why has this not happened yet? Anyway, that's just my thing. <laughs> Uh, so maybe to get back to um, this this first episode uh, to talk about some of the specifics, um, one of the things that I found really striking about this episode is it's uh, there's an attempt to sort of uh, create some new motifs that are perhaps going to to echo throughout s- uh, some of the future episodes. Uh, in particular, uh, I mean, an obvious, really striking one is this: uh, sometimes my arms bend back. And uh, that really striking, uh, basically, opening shot of Bobby in front of the crucifix bending his arms back. I mean, it's not subtle. It is totally not subtle. But um, I, I find that the way that this episode sort of uh, folds in the living and the dead and the, and the way that, uh, that Laura continues to find these, these echoes in life, it, it, which we should also mention this episode features the first appearance of Madeline, yeah. uh, which is going to be a, a really big deal, obviously. And um, I, I don't know. I, I think this this episode is is really really effective at, um, I mean, and not just because it features the funeral sequence, of of underlining the ways in which death really carries a lot of weight in this town. Yeah, I have I have some stuff to add about the uh, about the role of Laura in relation to that funeral sequence. But uh, but Matt, did you want to add anything first? Um, I mean, what struck me most about it is that. I think this is the show where psychoanalysis kind of is, is, is most prevalent, and the show actually starts by kind of cueing us toward a psychoanalytic framework when uh, Coop says, you know, break the code, yeah. solve the crime. And then all throughout the episode, we get these little kinds of condensations and displacement. So when Madeline is introduced, um, Leland is watching Invitation to Love, right? And, and, on the show, it's about how Serena Swift, who kind of looks like Cheryl Lee, is playing both Emerald and Jade. And then yeah. <laughs> walks in, and Madeline is, of course, named Madeline after Vertigo. And then there's the doubling of, you know, uh, Bobby and Mike. Uh, and all of these different kinds of mirrorings, doublings, layerings, which really got me thinking about how are we supposed to sort of interpret the role of fantasy in the show, the phenomenological integrity of the images, because are all of these things, you know, is this one of the cliches about Twin Peaks, you know, when you listen to every single actor talk about it, they say, well, the show is all about getting, you know, behind the surface. It's about getting to the depth. It's like, you know, blue velvet. We're going to get what's underneath the grass into the insects, you know, but and in that case, does that make Bob does that make invitation to life? Are all of these things just sort of manifest content? Are they just appearances masking a kind of essence, right? But I don't think Lynch actually works that way at all. I mean, that's what differentiates him from something like Mr. Robots, right? Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen uh, Mr. Robot. Things turn out to be hallucinated or imagined on the show. Yeah. But I think things have kind of equal phenomenological integrity, right? Like Bob is not just some sort of mask for another character on the show, invitation to love. Like these things also have a kind of materiality. Um, and that's what makes it sort of fascinating, right? That, that there are these different kinds of worlds 
communicating and telepathically working with one another. And I think that's what makes it interesting that fabric is uh, fantasy is woven into the fabric of the film in a way where it's something more than just a sign or a hallucination of something else. I, I think I think that's a, a great point. Uh, I, I really I like that way of putting it, Matt. I mean, I think I've had a similar reaction to some things about the show, and in particular, I don't I don't love that description that that go to idea that Lynch is always just getting at the seamy underbelly of something. Um, I actually think it's much more complicated than that because I think that Lynch wouldn't ever want to say that what we're seeing as the so-called good side, the like upper, you know, pretty side of things is false or isn't uh, real or is somehow just a fantasy that we should get below. I think the point for Lynch is much more complicated, which is the fact that everything is always visible and obvious and and what matters like what's worth thinking about and investigating is is why it is that we end up focusing on certain things and viewing things a certain way and not another way and i think again the stuff with laura and the funeral ends up doing that perfectly laura always ends up embodying this tension so much as like kind of microcosm of the wider show and i think one of the things i I really love about the funeral sequence is you get so much uh so many kind of rapid movements between ways of thinking about laura particularly so Leading up to the funeral sequence, you get the fight between uh, Albert Rosenfeld and Doc Hayward. And, and effectively, it's, you know, two white men fighting over a female body about about what is the right way to deal with this, right? Rosenfeld is saying, well, it's for the, uh, this object is for science and we need it to get to the truth. And the other one is saying, no, this object is mine for kind of a sentimental relationship to her and I'm fighting you over it. And, and neither one of them are really even dealing with Laura. And then Coop comes in, and of course, Coop is always this sort of magical, wonderful figure. Coop comes in, and he's the only one who sort of actually engages with with her body as like an as a as a, a real presence, right? I mean, he's the one who puts her hand back on her uh, back underneath the sheet and sort of has this moment with her on the table. So you get that, and then you move into Cooper's speech about how he, uh, the speech he gives to Rosenfeld in a later scene about how Twin Peaks is a town where life matters and like when when someone's life ends it touches everyone and this is a way of life that he thought had left but it's still present and you know this idea that Twin Peaks is supposed to be a space that that has a has a, a truer relationship to life and then you get to the funeral sequence in one of these things why I've always sort of loved Bobby as a character that Bobby is is the character who ends up speaking up and saying you know, after again, you have this sentimental speech from the uh, the priest saying Laura was headstrong and bold, and this is why we loved her. And you get you you believe him, like you understand that to be truth. And yet Bobby says steps up and says, "This is bullshit. Like this is hypocrisy. We all knew she was in trouble, and we didn't do anything, and we killed her." Amen. What are you looking at? What are you waiting for? You make me sick. You damn hypocrites make me sick! Everybody knew she was in trouble. But we didn't do anything. All you good people. You want to know who killed Laura? You did! We all did. Once we get further on in the series, we'll be able to talk about some of the stuff that's going on in these episodes where Lynch is equally playing with showing us things that we just sort of glance over and later we'll realize what import they had to the development of the show. I just wanted to get back to what you guys were saying about the way reality is considered on this show and especially as compared to perhaps other series. And 
I was thinking back again to the X-Files, which uh, we, mm. we briefly mentioned last week as being a sort of a, an FBI connection, as well as having other obvious connections. And one of the key differences between the, something like the X-Files and something like Twin Peaks is that in, on the X-Files, you have this constant war between you know, the, the rational and the irrational as literally embodied in its characters, although not, not always on a, on a strict one-to-one relationship, obviously. Whereas mm-hmm. that's absolutely not what Twin Peaks does. This is a show where you know characters are, are always talking about their their belief systems, uh, about visions, about dreams, and the and and the plot and characters all take these things with 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 the, you know th- these things are always taken with equal weight. Like if if someone has a vision, like when when. Uh, when Laura's mother is interviewed about her vision of Bob, and they, you know, and there's a police sketch, essentially a composite made of of Bob, and then and then eventually, of course, uh, Coop looks at it and says, "Oh, the eyes aren't quite right," but it's it's that's basically right. You know, this it's a world where all of these all of these influences and all of these planes of, of reality and experience are taken equally. And again, like th- this, I've sort of touched on this before, but so many other shows, and a show like Mr. Robot takes. Uh, takes that like you know sort of makes conflict out of like it was all a dream man or you know that character's not real and it's so goddamn boring like sorry it just is I I kind of I really grew to hate Mr. Robot over the course of its second season Um, but that's the fact that these things are all just taken as, as a given on this show is still very rare yeah and I mean I'm not the first to say this but you know in terms of taking everything that happens on the show seriously I mean these things that seem like laughably kitsch the point is though it's not like oh there's this kitschy false reality behind which lies the horror or something that's horrific I mean Lynch believes equally in those kitschy moments exactly like the the robins in blue velvet Uh, and it's because he has such a sort of genuine almost childlike belief in some of these moments that that that's what contributes to the sort of uncanny aura of the show i think um that he's totally invested you know the beauty the surface has just the same amount of integrity as all of the horror all of the bizarre spiritual telepathic stuff going on too yeah I, and that connects very much i think to stuff we've talked about already in the past which is again this this presence of the, of the way that Lynch and Frost use very prosaic seeming kind of genres as a structuring framework for the show, right? Like the mystery genre and the soap opera and, and things that are very much equated with a sort of like daily banal experience, but they find them to be very fascinating and very like, I mean, inspirational is a bit goofy of a way to express that, but, but very, um, uh, motivating and very like aesthetically uh, energizing for the show, which is not something that I think many other people, particularly at that point in television history, would be would be interested in, right? Like taking stuff that's so familiar as to be as to be boring and and already considered bad, and finding in it this kind of like beauty of kitschiness. Like that that is definitely a thing that's specific to Lynch for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and one thing I noticed in this episode, you know, I think we do tend to think of all of the characters as as sort of like too sweet, too kitschy, but there's a real sadism, actually, just to the everyday interactions between these characters. And I'm thinking of when Shelley actually makes fun of the way Leland uh, kind of loses his mind at the funeral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's describing it to these two guys and they're laughing hysterically. And all throughout the show, there are these moments where people take real kind of pleasure in other people's suffering. Like even when it's announced that, that Laura is dead, you know, Audrey gets this kind of like smarmy smile on her face. Like a lot of people on the show are wishing other people ill will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even within this kind of bubbly surface world, there's a lot of uh, malice, I think. 
Well, something that really emerges in these two episodes that kind of connects to this as well is there's these there's sort of a twin layer of malevolence. You've got sort of the Bob layer, and you've got this this criminal element, which is like sort of a lot more a lot more common, but is still like still very real. And once again, like the the show takes both this sort of criminal con- actually there's multiple criminal conspiracies going on, which I always forget. Um, it, it it again it it takes these uh, seriously and literally. Uh, oh God, I didn't mean for that to be an echo of stuff. Anyway, <clears throat> um, it it takes these t- these twin layers of evil uh, like equally literally, uh, and um, and doesn't like it 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 doesn't see it doesn't like make a point of 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 comparing them. It just kind of lets them both uh, coexist. Yeah, and and it also is yeah. It's just as exactly as you say, Simon. It's not particularly interested in trying to resolve some tension between them. It's just simply is there, and we're sort of left to deal with it. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the, I guess that opens the question of the bookhouse boys, which is uh, an interesting thing. And and maybe we'll want to talk about this uh, towards the end when we're going to try to to maybe tackle some of the questions of like the politics of uh, Twin Peaks a little bit. But there's there's interesting stuff with the bookhouse boys there. I mo- I mostly just wanted. To to talk about it because I uh, I wanted to point out that for because we're all Canadian who are on this podcast currently and this has always been one of these jokes that's made me laugh about Twin Peaks this idea that the Canadians streaming down from the border above Twin Peaks are somehow all from Quebec even <laughs> though that would be British Columbia not Quebec and it certainly wouldn't be Americans doing terrible chemical <laughs> accents which is what happens in uh, in this episode yep. but anyway <laughs> um, yeah and, well and and the fact that Canada is like the source of this malevolence. Yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah, the, uh... not to say that couldn't happen, but you know, it's <laughs> it's it's a little. It runs a little bit counter to the usual pop culture assumptions. That's true. Uh, yeah, the uh, I, I'm trying to think if I have any other major things I wanted to get to about uh, episode four. I mean, I think one one thing I picked up on in episode four that uh, we'll probably have occasion to keep talking about, and it's. Uh, maybe ties into something that Matt was saying earlier, but it, basically one thing I've noticed, I've been trying to pay attention to this, uh, these moments between Coop and Audrey that you start to get more and more in these episodes. And one thing I find really fascinating about them is I think they end up revealing a, a sort of interesting level of the layers of, of McLaughlin's performance as Coop, because the interactions with Audrey, he's such um McLaughlin is doing such interesting work around making it as though he is, he is reading Audrey. Like there is a level of um, of reserve and a level of kind of uh, suspicion around how he's engaging with her, a reservedness that he's always sort of trying to get something out of her. And then it changes so dramatically, right? When he ends up in other scenes, like you get the scene a few minutes later where he's giving this speech about what Twin Peaks means to him as a town. And you get the sense that there is kind of a real sort of like Boy Scout openness about Coop. And I think that's the thing that everybody remembers about Coop as a character is this sort of like genuine enthusiasm and openness to the universe. But there are also very much these moments where he is... He is almost verging on the kind of voyeuristic elements of what he of the character he plays uh, Jeffrey in, in Blue Velvet earlier, but almost verging on that, where he's almost sort of fascinated with being able to kind of uh, see people, and it's particularly obvious in the pilot when you get these encounters with Coop and sort of the various people of the town, where he's sort of trying to trip them up. And um, anyway, I'm not sure where that's going, but I think it's an interesting beginning to a relationship that is so unproblematically taken as a romantic relationship later. The way that Coop is sort of using Audrey almost in these early scenes. Anyway, what about the fact that he's almost clairvoyant? You know that he 
he reads her writing at the beginning of the, of the show and says, oh, you have a you have a hungry heart and all of this sort of thing. And that he can always detect when people have been in relationships. Like, it's interesting to think about what kind of detective is he? You know, is he the radiosynactive kind of classical detective? Is he a hard-boiled detective? Is he none of these things? You know, is he some sort of um, weird mutant almost? <laughs> <laughs> I, I always took that as, as one of the, of like Mark Frost's more overt references to Sherlock Holmes. The fact that, uh, the fact that he can read people's, um, relationships by listening to them talk to each other for eight seconds is almost a jokey kind of reference to this impossible deductive ability that just is like so far beyond what an average human could do that it, it reads as almost magical, right? It also, it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Sherlock Holmes because the other thing is that he both positions himself as being above and yet kind of also in the mix uh, of, of all these relationships. Like he's he's constantly mm-hmm. pointing, oh yeah, you're you're sleeping around with this person and you've been in love with this person for you know 20 years or whatever. And you, you can always detect it. And he's always just constantly on the verge of, of being drawn into uh, some sort of drama himself. But at least for the time being, seems to be uh, seems to make a point of being kind of above the fray, which is very much uh, something in, that's in common with most depi- with most depictions of, of Sherlock Holmes that he's kind of uh, almost an asexual creature. But Coop, Coop definitely has aspects of that for sure, and I think well, we should remember to keep talking about that later. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, another thing I, I noticed just about this particular episode is how badly trapped a number of the characters in Twin Peaks feel. You know, you have uh, Ed and Nadine and Norma, and Hank, and Shelley, and Leo, and you have all of these kind of disastrous uh, kind of couplings and relationships based on various kinds of, of domestic abuse. Yeah. And this is sort of the ugly side of Twin Peaks's isolationism, mm-hmm. right? That on the one hand, it's all about how, how we're moving to this sort of magical place, which is closed to the rest of the world, but so many of the characters there feel like they're longing to escape. Yeah, I think that goes along interesting with what Simon was saying about the fact that the sort of the criminal aspects of the show are sort of equated to the, the, the this sort of terrifying cosmology that seems to be underneath it. And I think the domestic violence stuff and the way in which the kind of bourgeois structures are, are sort of generally built around these like eruptions of violence around the dinner table and stuff. I think that very much ends up working a similar way that they're all put on the same level. Um, it is interesting though, that the domestic violence stuff still, we almost forget to take, we almost forget to equate it with those things, right? Like it almost mm-hmm. ends up still seeming like the least, the least noticeable, the least spectacular, which is something that again, I think Lynch is very much pointing out for sure. Since in previous episodes we've commented on Eric DeRay's performance, I just wanted to make a quick note about I find him the most effective when whoever is is directing or writing the episode gives him something to do with his hands while he's talking. Like that sequence where Coop goes to talk to him and he's and he's chopping wood furiously is really effective. <laughs> it is, yeah. I actually disagree that that he is the worst. I think uh, easily James is the worst character. Yeah. For me, I mean, when you think about the fact that like he and um, Donna are supposed to be like the young premier couple on the show, they have zero sexual chemistry next to Bobby and Shelley, who are the real, actually like young, vital stars. But going back to it now, they're the ones who seem cool, actually. And James just seems like a wimpy little dork, like he's going to cry. <laughs> I think mean, he definitely does. I, I will say, I think James... There are particularly the episodes that Lynch is involved with in the early run of the series. I, I think Lynch is doing something very interesting with Donna and James, which is, yeah, finding them. They're supposed to be this kind of wholesome, pure couple at the center of it. And I think you're right, Matt. It's like completely, 
it's it's sexless for one thing and it's very it's like chased to the point of of silliness almost and yet what the first bunch of times i watched twin peaks i there is still something i find very affecting about them like they they do end up standing in for this kind of uh yeah level of sort of innocent mm. belief and innocent goodness that that is like the one end of the spectrum where at the other end of the spectrum you have something like bob and so even though it ends up being there's almost a commentary on how sort of silly it is that we would put these these two as the most sort of wonderful thing you could find when they're really kind of almost lifeless it's it's hard not to get on board with it when lynch takes it so seriously too like when when you feel like lynch isn't isn't mocking what their belief in the sort of goodness of the world, but is, is on board with it. I mean, I think uh, this is again, something I'm cribbing from Dennis Lim, but, but Dennis in his book on Lynch talks very much like regularly about how, how in Lynch's universe, having an ironic view on something doesn't necessarily cancel out the sincere, the sincere view either. Like Lynch is able to hold them in, um, in tension together, which is kind of miraculous because irony, you know, generally cancels out sincerity and Lynch is able to find them both all the time. But James's performance definitely goes downhill. I will add that too. <laughs> James, James is supposed to have some kind of sexual magnetism and I won't give any spoilers away, but he does have relationships later on in the show that play on that. Mm-hmm. And he always, you know, he, he's not James Dean. He's not like any of the reference he's supposed to be evoking. You know, mm-hmm. he's this very kind of flat, I don't know. I Bobby to me seems like the the cooler character on the show watching it now. The real James Dean, definitely. Yeah, Bobby yeah. is definitely doing that, for sure. I, I think James and Donna work best as kind of an anti-mirror of the the adult relationships on the show, which are so corrupted and, again, trapped. Like the, To me, the, their most obvious corollary is uh, Big Ed and Nadine, the, the teen sweethearts who, you know, th- things happen and now they're just in this in this horrible in this horrible situation that they once again feel, feel trapped in. And like, it's, it's start and they seem to also have started from this place of innocence and uh, uh, the sort of idyllic feel. And you, you, you feel as though that's sort of where, as long as they're in Twin Peaks, I guess that's where James and Donna are kind of inevitably headed just by virtue of their juxtaposition together in these episodes. So to me, that works. Yeah. I, th- I think that's an interesting, uh, the way to get at it for sure. Uh, should we should we move to episode five and and just cover some of the stuff in the uh, in in the one armed man? I mean, we here we get Gordon Cole. We get the the first yeah. uh, time we have owls. Owls. The owls are not what they seem. This is the first time. Well, we don't we hey. don't yet know that the owls are not what they seem. <laughs> that is true. They're just weird. The owls are just weird <laughs> at this point. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of bird action in this episode. Oh, it's true. Many birds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is you guys that's the kind of high level analysis you're going to continue to get on the laundry. <laughs> There's a lot of birds. <laughs> as I kind of mentioned before, I think we sort of identified one of the episodes last week as being sort of more of a plot building episode and that's kind of how on a narrative level, uh, I guess that's how I see this episode in terms of creating these new pairings, uh both like actually new to those characters as well as just sort of revealing uh, pairings. Uh, we sort of get that at the end of this episode with the phone call between Josie and Hank, and uh, we also get that with this uh, this rendezvous between uh, Benjamin Horn and Leo. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's sort of a, like that's sort of a classically important thing to do when you have a large ensemble is start for- forging more connections between people. Uh, but at, at this point in the show, like the number of uh, of CD conspiracies is starting to get kind of insane. So it's sort of never ending. It just keeps adding uh, new and more and more people. But you also have like lovely, 
lovely sequences in it, I think, that are not necessarily about forging, like, building new kind of narrative stuff. But you also get lovely sequences. Like, you get sort of a, a, an early window into things like Norma and Shelley's relationship, mm-hmm. which has, has for me, always been one of the, the kind of very, like, sweet and touching elements of the show, this aspect of these two women who are maybe not... Uh, who are struggling with other things in their life, and it's sort of the one pleasant aspect of the life of their life is the fact that they're so kind to each other and like they love. It. I just I always find those sequences kind of heartbreaking. Shelly, you're gonna scare the customers. I've got one man too many in my life, and I'm married to him. Sound familiar? Maybe you should have a little talk with Leo. Leo doesn't talk. He hits. He was so great at first, you know. With this flashy guy in his hot car. And then we get married and I find out all I was looking for is a maid he didn't have to pay. I feel so stupid. Look at us. Two men apiece. So we don't know what to do with any of the four of them. What about the fact that Cooper and Sarah Palmer have this kind of telepathic relationship based on her strange hallucinations and his dream of Bob? Sometimes I wonder, you know, you were talking earlier in an earlier podcast about how we want to enter this world of Twin Peaks and it makes us feel kind of safe and warm. And is part of this because it promotes a sort of magical thinking at times, you know, it, it has this this sort of belief not only in an afterlife but in kind of telepathic sorts of relationships between between people that you know I think a more materialist sort of director wouldn't give into I mean is this is Lynch to be held accountable is this a flaw sometimes of the show that he gives in too heavily to a kind of magical thinking or or not at all I put it out there no the show has no flaws flaws are not allowed No, I mean, I, but really, though, I think it's a feature, not a bug. When we get that scene, I forget which which of the two episodes it's in, where where it's become clear that Coop is, is talking to Diane about possibly, uh, you know, purchasing some property, and he's clearly become uh, besotted with this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really, and it, of course, mirrors our growing affection uh, for, for the land and for its people, even as all this ugliness begins to manifest. I mean, I think that's just a very canny... Uh, it's just a very, very canny knowledge of, of what the show is doing. And it's just sort of acknowledging that, yes, it, there's sort of a twin seduction going on, but both for the audience and for the characters. And I, I, I don't see that as as uh, as being a flaw in any way. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think, Matt, you're, you're right to point this out as like a thing that I, I certainly would agree that it, it could be a crutch for, for, you know, any number of other uh, people making television, the idea that like, oh, people are just telepathically connected and that's how information makes its way around or all of a sudden, again, the fact that like Twin Peaks is very loose, particularly in these early episodes with its kind of cosmology and, you know, people have different attitudes about whether the show makes sort of sense around its kind of mythology stuff going forward. I always think it does, but I'm not holding it to an insane standard either. Uh, but anyway, I think you could sort of, I think it could be a problem, but I think Lynch and Frost as well are are so kind of wry about what they're doing. Like they have such a, a sharp 
sense of almost self-criticism and self-humor about it, that it, it keeps it in check. Like, for example, I guess we'll go back to the previous episode just for a sec. The ending of the episode three with the Red Room. Uh, I mean, you know, this is such a, a, a jokey almost tease to fans that, that Coop wakes up at the end and says, I know who killed Laura Palmer. Hmm. And you get to the beginning of episode four and you get all of this stuff with Audrey and all these sort of slow scenes before Sheriff Truman even comes in. And you, all of this build up to who killed Laura Palmer. And Coop says, oh, I don't remember. And like the... The idea that, uh, I think Lynch has even talked about this, that, that part of what that sequence was sort of meant to stand in for was these experiences we've all had where we're sort of out with friends late into the night and we're having a drink and we're talking about some grand problem of the universe or our lives and we feel like we have it all figured out and then we go to sleep and we wake up the next morning and we're like, oh my god, none of that made any sense at all. Like, what were we even thinking? I mean, you know, like, so I think there's definitely a sense of sort of them even keeping their own tendencies there in check a little bit. I uh, I wanted to tie back to this doesn't really relate to what you were just saying, Kate, but it does relate to something that you were asking at the beginning of the show, Matt, about um, Twin Peaks and his place in the golden age of television, quote unquote. And I, I think another key difference between Twin Peaks and something like, say, The Sopranos is so, shows like The Sopranos and many shows that follow that sort of center on, on an antihero figure have this adversarial relationship almost with uh, with the audience. Where, especially on The Sopranos, where David Chase is creating this identification between you and Tony Soprano and then punishing you for that identification by just making him do uh, increasingly horrible things and, like, sort of having him continue to win. Whereas there's absolutely nothing like that in Twin Peaks. Like, if there was going to be an antihero on Twin Peaks, it would be the town itself seducing you while also containing all these horrors. But the show never judges its characters or you for for this seduction uh it's this just absolutely not something that lynch and frost are uh are interested in and and again this is just not how other other media like this operates Mm -hmm. no i agree there's nothing on the show like for example in the first season of homeland which has to be one of the most like hitchcockian uh plays with identification where we kind of want the brody character to commit terrorist acts you know We've, we've sort of seen him go through that process and we like want him to complete this sort of anti-American mission. You know, I think, I guess what I was getting at when I was saying, you know, there's telepathic connections between people. And then I wonder if sometimes Lynch, I get, I take the point that he has a kind of self reflexive wry attitude towards all of this, but does he sometimes rely on kind of magical solutions to real mm-hmm. life contradictions? Oh, you know? interesting. Okay. I think about the, the character of Hawk, and there again, you might say, well, this is sort of a cliche representation of an indigenous person. But I mean, he does play a very kind of cliche representation of the spiritual indigenous magical man. Uh, and, you know, Josie is, and I think he plays with this as well as this sort of orientalist mysterious figure. But I mean, it's incredibly, uh, you know, it's a white show, obviously, that I don't think has any kind of systemic approach to thinking about things like and this is something we can maybe talk about, move into a little bit about class relations or bigger social problems. I think in some ways this is Lynch's greatest weakness and strength that he does really follow things on intuition and likes to talk about ideas. But I wonder if he has any kind of systemic way for thinking about uh, what's going on in culture. This is, uh, I mean, I, obviously this is going to lead to a lot of other places, but one of the things I'm most fascinated to see when the new season of Twin Peaks starts is how the TV recap industrial complex is going to deal with Lynch. Because to the credit and sometimes discredit of people who write about television now, especially sort of because it it revolves a lot around younger folk who who get paid a pittance to write about and recap television, 
um, there is this preponderance of like social justice based criticism, uh, which is which is like that's an excellent tool to assess things with, but it's often used as uh, like the only tool, uh, especially nowadays. And uh, this is going to get into some really thorny territory, so I have to I have to speak <laughs> carefully here. That to me is not an especially useful uh, or insightful way generally uh, to think about Lynch, or at least not in isolation. And I'll be very curious to see how um, how this new generation of TV writers handles what is to come, which is surely going to be a, a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of questions here, and we and we can just make sure we sort of hone in. I suppose hone in on these episodes particularly, but like, I, I mean, obviously Lynch. There's been various people who've tackled this question about, you know, his relationship to women, his relationship to misogyny, his his relationship to using um, African American actors. Like, what there there are lots of questions here about what that we can sort of make our way into. I think Matt's question about whether there is sort of a systemic way of thinking about uh, class or kind of political issues in Lynch's uh, work, and and maybe if that is or isn't there, I think that's a good question. Um, for me, I I personally would push back a little bit on on the idea that the character of Hawk, for example, is sort of like a magical figure. I I, I think there are. The way to meet Lynch where he lives, I think, a little bit, and to give the benefit of the doubt somewhat, I'm sure, but is is to to look at these things in their kind of specific specific instances. I mean, I think Lynch very much ends up pushing back against the idea of a kind of representative sample or representative characters, right? I mean, everything is so specific, everything is so unusual that there is clearly a bit of a push against uh, having people stand in for larger groups of people. And this this ends up relating as well to the fact that Lynch is so entirely uninterested in the kind of psychology of people as like a, as a sample of a, a sort of typifying way to, to point to other people behind somebody who is the representative sample. Um, but anyway, I do think, I mean, I think the character of, of Hawk is, is interesting. I know people have written about like the role of kind of indigeneity in Twin Peaks and how it's used. I, just from this particular episode and, and other ones going forward, I would say that I do think I wouldn't rush to say that that it is simply magical to have Hawk uh, have a relationship to to be speaking about, like, I don't know, the experience of the Coast Salish people in uh, the northern, northeast United States. I mean, I think think Hawk's relationship to a kind of spirituality ultimately benefits from the fact that, again, the rest of the show takes those kinds of things so seriously across everyone. Hawk doesn't end up really standing out as someone who tends to believe in things that, that might be classified as, like, I don't know, uh, new agey from the Western perspective or whatever. I mean, I don't think Hawk is singled out that way. And I would point out that there's some other interesting things that happen in the episode, in episode five, for example, you get, uh, the one, our man, Philip Gerard at the end of that interrogation sequence, revealing that he is in love with another man, which uh, on 1990s television would have been kind of an unusual thing. And the show makes not a single, there's no judgment. It's not a joke. It's simply this sort of guy crying and then that's the end of it and I, I actually can't remember if that ever really comes back as subject matter I'm not sure it does but it's just sort of simply part of the world and that's mm-hmm. what it is just to be clear you know I'm not saying that he does exploit the character of Hawk it's more like I'm posing it as a question yeah. you know uh, and I think you know just because and I, I think it's true that he doesn't you know if you were to ask him about Trump or ask him about you know Black Lives Matter I don't think he would give you the kind of answer you might get from another kind of director which is not to say however that he's depoliticized and I think the show does symptomatize certain kinds of political tensions in different ways I mean you know you you've mentioned on previous episodes of course that the show's indebted to you know the genre of the of the soap opera and at the time when people were writing about that it was almost always through the lens of a kind of Jamesonian 
postmodernism, right? Yeah, exactly, That's, postmodern. Right. Oh, that 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 the show is postmodern. That we get a pastiche of the '50s and the '80s, and we get a kind of liquidation of affect uh, that that stems from not knowing whether to laugh or kind of react in horror to what people are doing. All of which are symptoms of kind of a, a crisis of historical representation that comes with late capitalism, yada, yada. Watching the show now, um, I see it as a product of, of another kind of situated historical tension, which is the relationship between it, it being sort of on the threshold of the 80s and the 90s. Mm. And, you know, we forget sometimes the show is made in the context of a kind of financial recession uh, and also a kind of emergent counterculture. And I feel like built into the aesthetics of the show, you kind of feel this tension between, on the one hand, sort of 80s decadence and opulence and their characters who look like they were imported from Dallas or something like that, and a kind of 90s consumer pessimism, you know? Mm -hmm. And like Bobby and, and Donna at times looked like they could be thrown into some sort of Sonic Youth video or something like that. Um, and so I think you do get this kind of um, apathy in those characters or something that relates to the cultural zeitgeist of the time. And I was a little too young to watch the show when it was on TV in a sustained way, but I do remember like, growing up that the people who liked the show were the same people who were into like weird quote unquote music at the time, you know, who were into Flaming Lips or Nirvana or whatever. Like the show somehow lent itself to a kind of shifting over and in, in kind of the values that that the younger culture had and that I think clearly um, lynch privileges a lot of the younger characters on the show. I don't know what, yeah. how you guys feel about its sort of relationship to the, the sort of socioeconomic period of the early 90s, or even the countercultural uh, climate of the time. I feel extremely ill-equipped to talk about that, but somehow I feel like you are not as ill-equipped. <laughs> yes, Matt does seem to know what he is talking about. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I, I also feel a bit ill-equipped. I was a bit young at that point as well, and I didn't necessarily bone up on this uh, going into the episode, but I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right, Matt, that there is kind of maybe a growing awareness of, um, yeah, some of the things that are on the horizon in the 90s, and I... I as my frame of reference, I can again maybe go back to the X-Files as something that I think picks up on and extends something that is happening in Twin Peaks. And, and Simon and I have actually talked about this in relation to X-Files in, in other podcasts. But the idea that there is um, certainly the, the form of increasing skepticism around forms of authority, around a kind of gov a government structure in the 90s, um, a sense of and, – and, you know, that's not new. Obviously, like the Nixon in the 70s, it's not new. But there is almost a kind of cyclical sense that it is really coming to the forefront again in the 90s, uh, which is interesting thinking about the kind of Clinton years and how, on the one hand, the Clintons tend to stand in for a very, like, idealized version of the Democratic uh, sort of party and Democratic experience in the 90s and simultaneously the way in which there were – not such good things that were developing across the kind of uh, financial and socioeconomic uh, neoliberal expansion of the 90s under the Clintons. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of uh, kind of complicated things going on there. Um, but yeah, Matt, I don't know. Did you have other things you wanted to add for that? Well, I mean, the thing that I keep saying to myself reviewing the show this week is that, look, I wish I could go back to my teenage self and announce that the year is 2017 Donald Trump is president of the United States and Twin Peaks is back on television, you know, and the two <laughs> things seem so uncannily connected in this weird way, not not causally, but it feels like that's going to put Twin Peaks beside itself against itself in this sort of really interesting politicized context. And it's interesting to watch that opening credit sequence, which is all about industry and 
outmoded industries, you know, like pulp and and lumber. And, you know, it all, I was almost imagining, like, could this be a kind of sardonic make America great again um, infomercial? You know, like we have this kind of idealization of an insular small town and like what threatens the town, according to, you know, some of the people in it, like it's this threat of foreign interest. Like I think you mentioned in the very first podcast on the pilot, we get on the one hand, what seems to be this very kind of like, you know, nature Americana montage. And the first image we get is Josie, who represents something mysterious, right? And then we get the Norwegian investors and that the whole town seems to be um, trying to work out its relationship to globalization and market finance. But then, of course, the, the real threats are, of course, the corporatists who are, um, right pimps and cooking the books and it's the people on the inside who are doing all of this stuff so i mean it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in the contemporary context like how how the show will or won't relate to what's going on now these outmoded industries are of course uh, still completely irrelevant because we didn't just have uh, the new head of the democratic national committee introduced by a clean coal advocate so this stuff is all totally over yeah, exactly. It's not a problem anymore at all. Things are great. Um, I like. I was. Gonna, I think Matt, you're, you're getting at something that I kind of wanted to bring up about uh, Twin Peaks and, and politics in general, which I think is something that ends up at least sort of being talked about across many of Lynch's films, but uh, is is maybe working specifically in a certain way in Twin Peaks, which is this idea of of Lynch having you know, for his critics, maybe a problematic relationship with an idealized, uh, backward-looking, uh, a kind of idealized past, and which is, of course, something that is, is structurally uh, inherent to a kind of populist uh, nationalism that right now is obviously uh, rampant and continuing to ramp up. And I do think that certainly, you know, Lynch could be accused of that if you, if you look at it a bit, I think, superficially. But I, I actually think there is already a kind of almost political move in terms of what Lynch is doing with his, quote-unquote, finding the senior underbelly or, or if we want to say pointing out not an underbelly but pointing out what's already in front of us that we're not looking at constantly um, I think there's a political move that Lynch is making in the sense that he his work even if it's of course set in the current day because he, he's only done one period piece which is Elephant Man but his work is always set in the current day but there is something that he's doing there where he's not he he, he purposefully finds our idealized tendencies like what we think about as our idealized fantasies he purposely looks finds those and then takes those and points out what is being repressed, what is being left out of those fantasies, what what we're having to not look at in order to idealize those kinds of spaces. And, and I think that's something a little different than saying, like, again, this sort of didactic idea that we've already pointed out many times Lynch is not interested in, which is saying to you, like, oh, well, this is what you're living, and look at this, you're, you're forgetting this, or whatever. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's really kind of creatively finding a way to get to those fantasies to get to those idealized dreams that, you know, even even those of us who really don't ever want to ascribe to a kind of populist, uh, backward-looking idealization of the past, you know, we don't want to ascribe to those. And yet, as, as we pointed out in this idea of the show being comforting, they really mean something to us still. Like, they still have a hold on our imaginations in a way that matters. And I think Lynch, to his credit, takes that seriously and isn't willing to dismiss that as something that only belongs to, like, conservatives or only belongs to a, a certain kind of political vantage point, right? Yes, and I think this is one of the ways in which the show is kind of consistent with surrealism beyond just, oh, dreams and fantasy. Mm. That, you know, surrealism is a Marxist discourse about the outmoded and about outmoded commodities. And when we see the sort of these, these past narratives thrust into the present, we start to realize um, we, 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 
the, the, the sort of mythologies around those things become denaturalized in some yeah. way. And so in having, you know, these characters who want to go to the malt shop and want to live this sort of idealized 50s nostalgia, something about that, I mean, both what's sort of beautiful about it and, and naive about it comes to the fore, right? So again, I don't think that he is depoliticized. That's not really the point I'm making. I'm more just yeah. trying to think about what, what ways and what, you know, how is he politicized? How are, how is the show social, you know, given how much people, you know, even talking to people about it, uh, you know, in, in coming into this week, you know, people were like, oh, I don't, I don't think he is social at all. I just think he's, you know, this kind of idiot savant who is like following his intuition and, you know, which I don't think is true at all. I think he is kind of engaging with things. I think he is a materialist in a lot of ways. I think he's a guy who works with his hands, who is, again, kind of in accordance with surrealism, concerned with the material lives of things and objects, uh, and is very, you know, conscious about kind of the way in which people's behavior interacts with the environment. So I think he is political in, in different kinds of ways, but, you know, maybe not in the way, not, not in the, in the fashion of something like The Wire or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. Which is much more about like, let's map out political relations. Uh, yeah. But I think he is political and that's why it's gonna be so fa fascinating that the show is gonna emerge in this context of, that it is. I just wanna point out one moment and I believe the second episode um, where there's sort of an interesting, uh, I don't think it's deliberately there as a commentary, but I think it has to exist that way anyway. This this bizarre dynamic that, that, that crops up in the scene in the, in the shooting range when you know yeah. there is all this talk of of visions and intuition and almost like magical <laughs> thinking but also there's this undercurrent of ladies what are you going to do <laughs> well there there isn't there isn't those I mean cuz I actually wanted to bring up that scene too cuz it's always been one that I've been quite I've quite been fascinated with that scene for a long time and it's yeah you get all of the sheriff people and you get Coop and and Coop sort of says something about in the grand design women were drawn from a different blueprint and and on the one hand, obviously, that's it's like a conservative kind of thing to say, oh, there are two genders and the one gender operates differently than the other gender and blah, blah, blah. There's like an essentialist thing there. But again, the way in which the show actually operates tends to really push back against that kind of stuff. Like you get yeah. Hawk in one of my favorite bits with Hawk uh, reciting the poem that he has written for his uh, his girlfriend. And uh, and again, which is almost joking about this idea that, that Hawk as a, as a Native American actor would be reciting these kind of overtly spiritual things. Like the poem is almost playing with that a little bit. But at the end of it, he says, you know, I, I wrote that for my uh, for my girlfriend. And he says, you know, Diane, uh, or uh, uh, PhD, Brandeis. And, and everyone's like, oh, wow. You guys, I can remember seeing the show for the first time and being like, wow, he has a girlfriend with a PhD? I can't remember. Like, that might have been the first time I ever heard somebody uh, overtly reference a woman having a PhD on television and it being a good thing and something to admire. That's all I will say about that. But I think that scene is, is good. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're going to have to dive into this in a, in a future podcast, but something that I keep thinking about because I'm sure that the show will get knocked for what it does and does not represent in terms of diversity in the future. But something that doesn't get commented on a lot is the sheer amount. Of, there's a lot of, uh, of differences of ability on the show. Yes, there there's, is. I mean, from the one-armed man to Nadine to uh, obviously Michael J. Anderson. Donna Hayward's mom as well. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of um, physical difference on the show, which is not a form of diversity that you find a lot in any media. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, obviously that connects to Lynch's interests, like going back all the way to Eraserhead, but you know, that's, that's a, that's a huge topic we're going to have to get into some other time. It's true. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I know, I think we probably should start wrapping it up, but, um, but Matt, this has been such an interesting, uh, I, I really love all of these questions you brought. I think it's probably a good challenge for Simon and I to, uh, 
to keep thinking about this stuff going forward. I know, I know that Simon and I, when we were starting this podcast, uh, our decision to kind of do it actually ended up coinciding almost with the Trump uh, election happening. And I, you know, as I'm sure everybody had this experience, I, we went through about a week where I was thinking to myself, like, I don't really, how can you even justify doing this kind of stuff in this climate, right? Like taking time to, to focus on a television show that's 25 years old and talk about it in depth every week. Like there are clearly things we could be doing with that time that is a bit different. And I mean, I, I obviously we, we went forward with it. And I, and I think part of that is that I really do believe that this stuff matters. I believe taking, taking time and space to kind of think about our political commitments and our forms of thought through what we understand to be a kind of aesthetic experience for ourselves and why one thing matters to us and not another thing matters to us. I mean, I think this is important. I think it gives us a space to open these kind of questions up. And I'm really hoping we can keep thinking about this going forward. I think you're absolutely right, Matt, that there's going to be such interesting tension around what's going on with the new show emerging into this kind of political landscape, not just with Trump, but the world over. The world over. I mean, I, I can't wait for it now. I feel like I'm totally, I mean, it, the show is totally engrossing and I'm back engrossed in it. And, you know, such basic questions are fascinating me now. I mean, are they going to have computers in the new Twin Peaks? Are they going to have, are, there, are, you know, characters going to be on Facebook? Or will that just be totally effaced? You know, like, will the, the present world we live in, like, how is it going to impinge on this, on this mythical kind of, you know, world he's created? And it's just so fascinating to think about. Yeah. In conclusion, smash the state. Uh, yeah. Anyway, thank <laughs> yeah. you, Matt, so much for joining us. Uh, are you are you on the Twitters? Uh, you know, I'm not. Uh, I don't know what's wrong with me. I should be. I, I have an Instagram. You can <laughs> you can find me on there. That's my only real presence on social media. And I would just like to say very quickly, uh, congratulations to Alana Scotchmer on her new baby boy. Oh, that's nice. I would also I would say congratulations to Matt, who just had a very excellent article published in a cinema journal on uh, the film La Jete. I highly recommend people check that out because it's an excellent article. Fantastic. Oh, thank you. All right. So that's just about it for us. I just want to quickly mention uh, we are on iTunes. Please uh, rate or review us. We, we love to hear from people and definitely subscribe. You can find us at Sorted Cinema as well. SortedCinema.com. Uh, we will be forthcoming in more places as soon as I have time to set that up. Uh, thank you all so much for listening.